Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional grade industrial supplies. Count on real time product availability and fast delivery. Call clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. Almost live from the trenches of New York City. Here are your middle-aged warriors, Chris Cimino and Rick Summers. Hey, welcome back to the Middle-Aged Warriors on the Believe Podcast Network. I'm Chris Cimino alongside my co-host and friend, Rick Summers. Rick, uh, what do you have to say for yourself today? Not much. It's just, you know, now we're getting into the warmth and the humidity of summer and missing uh, sports, though there is talk that the NHL is coming back, which to me still seems so foreign. You know, they're going to do this play-in playoff round thing, which I still don't totally understand. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm really starting to miss baseball. It was great to talk with uh, John Franco a couple of weeks ago and yes. talk with Jeff, which we'll hear more of. Yeah, as, as we speak, actually, uh, just before we, I started this podcast, I was watching the local station here, the local Met station, SNY, and they're doing a rebroadcast of the 86 World Series. I think it was game four uh, that Darlene was starting. So this is, where, this is where we're getting our baseball from these days, but uh, hopefully hopefully things will uh, you know, eventually get back on track, at least to a degree where we can see new yeah. uh, MLB games being played. Uh, no fans in the stands, but at least uh, we can watch the games. It's going to be weird, but I mean, it's the same thing for Broadway, right? And it's just been so weird being in New York for the past couple of months with the streets so empty and now with all that's going on. And, and we'll talk about this. Maybe you and I'll actually do uh, a show uh, on the, what some of the emotion is uh, seeing our city kind of ransacked as we see other cities ransacked too, uh, going through this whole process. Yeah, it was it was it was one thing to see the images during the uh, pandemic and the abandoned streets, the empty streets, and the solitude. Now we're seeing Fifth Avenue uh, boarded up. You know, th- these big stores all with wood in front of them. So now it almost looks like, you know, after the Blitz, so to speak. It, it's just one more surreal image after another, uh, particularly coming out of New York City. But can I just tell you one? quick thing I saw on TV that made me ill is they had videotape of looters coming out of a store in Manhattan and taking these box loads of stuff and tossing him into a $350,000 Rolls Royce and, and then blowing off. I saw that I believe on inside edition last night. It's just unbelievable. Yeah. And I would definitely like to do a show with you about that. Yeah, this scenario, unfortunately, seemingly has brought out the lowest form of humanity, and yeah. uh, that's unfortunate. But yeah, we've there's a lot we could talk about in that vein. But uh, we have, for the first time, actually, we've interviewed a lot of people. But uh, Jeffrey Lyons, TV critic, uh, he deserves two shows apparently. But he had so many <laughs> stories uh, to talk about his exposure to bullfighting, his challenges in being a lifelong Red Sox fan. He he sang as a young boy in the Metropolitan Opera. He's writing a book about Hemingway, so there's, there's so much more to hear from him. And I guess we may as well get to the interview, part two, right? I, 
I guess so. You know, when you proposed Jeffrey as an interview subject, I thought he's an interesting guy, but I had no idea, no idea yeah, how I mean, much I've, he's got to tell. I worked alongside him and I learned more from this interview. So here's part two with Jeffrey Lyons. Hope you guys enjoy it. I knew you were into uh, bullfighting and through the, through the Hemingway connection, there was Hemingway connection, which we didn't even get into yet, but you actually spent summers in Spain with the, perhaps the most famous matador, Antonio Ordonez. Were you training at all or? No, 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 no. Um, in 19, we were Hemingway's guest in Cuba when I was a child. Uh -huh. And then in 1956, my parents took me to Spain. And in the hotel room next to us, there was a young actress named Sofia Sicilioni before she changed her last name. Uh -huh. And she cooked me a spaghetti dinner. Now, as Mel Brooks says, when you're 11, girls are just softer fellas. That's all they are. You don't, <laughs> don't really know what's going on, at least back then. Right? Uh, yeah, true. And, and we were on the set of, the, of uh, the Pride and the Passion, this movie with Frank Sinatra leading the Spanish guerrillas against, against um, the, um, Napoleon's forces. And uh, my father and I were taken to something called the bullfight by Richard Condon, who wrote The Manchurian Candidate, in which my father's mentioned, and also wrote Pritzi's Honor. And I was horrified. And the next day, I was completely changed, changed my life. I can't defend it. It doesn't belong here. I'd be the first to oppose it here. It's part of the Spanish culture. It is in decline. And these things progress. I mean, we have ultimate fighting here, which I find disgusting. And they call that a sport, kicking people and smashing them in the nose. It's just awful. Each to his own. I don't like hunters. I don't like our, our president's two sons who assassinate animals from 300 yards away through a telescope. Yeah. Bullfighting is something very different. Uh, you put yourself in danger. And Antonio was bullfighting what I guess Mantle and Mays were combined. And he was the most amazing man I ever knew. He could find a Spanish-speaking waiter in Bondurant, Wyoming. He, he knew how to say one thing in English, okay, okay Mac. And he, he could find his way. He was a fascinating guy. And he was a brother to another mother to me. And his grandsons, Francisco and Cayetano, after their father, not their grandfather, their father was killed in the arena in 1984, which never happens, never happens. Wow. Spain had the biggest funeral since Franco. She didn't want them to be bullfighters. So they spent three summers here in this house here on Long Island with us. We'd send them to camp in Maine and they'd stay with us before and after. And I have two capes that I got in Spain. In case a bullfight breaks out here, I'm ready. <laughs> and you never know. Francisco found them and he was training, he was doing passes under the moonlight on our lawn and they both became great matadors. In fact, the late Bob Simon did a full hour on them called Blood Brothers. And they're great guys. They're both retired from the, from the arena now. I was going to go back to baseball, and I, I hate to defer because these stories are so great. But I just wanted to ask you about baseball cards. First baseball card do you still have? I have all my Red Sox. I have about 2,000 Red Sox cards. You do? I'm hoping to use some of them in the book. You have to ask permission to use. But some of the companies are out of business. Mm. And I, have, sir, yeah. I, have every, I have every Yaz card, every Wade Boggs Red Sox card. Uh, all the Jim Rice cards, all going back. I have a few from the 40s. I have a Dom DiMaggio card. I got a Rico Petroselli card. Merico Petroselli. I finished his chapter in my book yesterday. Uh, a fine player. Played through injuries and Brooklyn born, by the way, mm. as you, you know. And so, yeah, a good shortstop. Had 40 home runs one year. Is that right? Impossible dream shortstop. The greatest shortstop, I think, in the history of the Red Sox was Nomar Garcia Parra. 
Oh yeah. Until he, until his career began to catch up with him, he was. And the, I put Joe Cronin uh, honorable mention and Petroselli and uh, one of one or two other. And it's some of the they're only they're only two catchers I put on all time greatest Red Sox catcher is Carlton Fisk. Carlton Fisk, yeah. And this right behind him, uh, honorable mention Jason Veritek. If for no other reason, that shot of him and making A Rod eat his glove, which was remember that shot. <laughs> Roger Clemens, by the way, William Roger Clemens is not a Texan. He was born in Ohio. He witnessed the Kennedy assassination. Wow, oh, really? He was in his mother's arms. He was about a year or eighteen months old or something. He was an infant, and he was there wow. in Dealey Plaza that day. Wow. You know, I'm wow. finding all sorts of stuff like that. Uh, Jimmy Fox, James Emery Fox, the greatest Red Sox first baseman. His grandfather fought in the Civil War, and he was apparently so intrigued by his stories that he ran away at 10 and wanted to join the Army. <laughs> now, as a, as a Red Sox fan, though, in, you know, year after year, and uh, they, were, they could smell it, they were so close, and then something would always happen uh, that would, you know, obviously like Game 6 in, you know, in 1986. And I was at Game 7. And here's when I really understood the, the heart and the, and the mentality of Red Sox fans. Now, if you were, I'm sure you remember this. Uh, after game six, game seven, it was a rain. Actually, the game was rained out. They had to play, I think, on a Monday night instead of the Sunday night. Sunday night, right. And uh, the Red Sox were up three to nothing. I'm well aware of that. Bruce Hurst was sailing along, and Hurst had owned the Mets during that World Series. And I was with my friend, and we were sitting one row behind three or four Red Sox fans. And I remember I turned to him and I said, I can't believe after game six, we're going we're gonna to blow this thing. We're not going to win this series. I mean, this, this, after that game, this series is ours. And all of the Red Sox fans turned around. And they looked at us and said, don't worry about it. We're going to blow it. <laughs> but for you, what was it like when they finally, finally did it? <laughs> 2004. Yeah. I, I don't like to watch big games with other, a lot of other people. If the Giants are in the Super Bowl, I'll have my family, but not – you know, go to a bar and watch it because you, you don't hear the commentary and you don't hear, you know. And I had uh, my family with me and I just got up and started singing. I can see clearly now the rain is gone. It was one of the great days of my life. Made up for, almost made up for Bucky Dent mm. and for Little Roller gets past Buckner. Yeah. And poor Buckner almost had 3,000 hits, marginal Hall of Famer. Yeah. Should have been taken out for defensive purposes to put in uh, uh let's what's what's his name from from dave stapleton from loxley alabama why do i know that uh of course you just know dave stapleton let alone where but i'm well aware of the fact that you and i both know that as much as we think we know about baseball we know nothing compared to the people who played it i once went to the opening game of the 1960 world series with a family friend named rapid robert feller bob feller probably one of the five or six greatest pitchers who ever lived the heater from Van Meter, Iowa. And he started talking to me about charting pitches and about, uh, you know, yesterday this guy hit a two, three, two curve. It's a business to the people who played it. Mm. You know, unless, you play, unless you played it at that level, you don't know anything. And it amazes me that somebody like Buck Showalter who never played or Sparky Anderson who never played still acquire the knowledge, but they have to see so many games. And, you know, uh, so we, we know a certain amount, but not, not everything. What's the greatest name that you that that rolls off your tongue that you like to say? Arnold Porter Carrero. <laughs> not, not John Bacabella. John Bacabella. My neighbor here, uh, my late neighbor, Bill Hans, who pitched for the Cubs. Yeah, yeah. And um, 
I, he, one day when he was converting his records to the computer, they said, don't bother him. Uh, he's, I said, oh, just tell him John Bacabella said hi. <laughs> George Altman, you remember George Altman played for the Cubs a little before. I mean, I, I would give him these unusual names. Uh, Bacabella is a good one. Uh, Arnold Porter Carrera. I'm trying to think. The, the 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 longest name, first and last, is William. Don't call me Bill Van Landingham. <laughs> More than Gerald Saltalamacchia. Ah, uh, that's I a great. Yeah, I remember that one. I like, I remember that I'd one. like to take Jeffrey and great names for five hundred dollars. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> letters in a player's name first and last. Everybody guesses Mel Ott, right? M-E-L-O-T-T. No, it's Ed Ott, and they're not related. Fine catcher for the Pirates in the 70s. Well, yeah, O-T-T. And they're not related. No, that and that's unusual unto itself. So let's get to what's up now. You're, you don't stop, obviously. Nothing stops Jeffrey Lyons. Uh, you're working on a couple of new books now, correct? Well, I'm doing a book on the... Uh, I have a book about Hemingway. When we went to Cuba, we went to the Hemingway house, and I had written them saying we were coming. I was with Joe Castiglione, the Red Sox announcer, and, and our wives. And I said, I was there as a child. I don't want to stand on the rope outside. I want to be in the house where I was as a child. You're not going to get anybody else coming here with that. And they were very solicitous to us. So I brought them copies of letters that Hemingway sent to my father mm. and photographs. And they gave me some letters my father wrote to Hemingway in 1940 and 1956. Oh, wow. And he gave me an idea to write a book about all. So I dug out all the letters from Hemingway. There are about 40 of them. And I put them in a historical context. Mm. And, I, and I looked up my father's anecdotes from the column and all that. And the book is uh, about 120 pages. And the uh, publisher said, you know, this is not a big book. I said, neither was the old man in the sea. You know, that yeah, that's true. <laughs> and I, I found at a yard sale. A Life magazine from 1952, a huge photograph, I think by Joseph Karp, of, uh, who photographed everybody, of Ernest Hemingway, and inside the complete text of The Old Man in the Sea. And it was for like selling for 10 cents that back then. I got it for $2. I looked it up on eBay. They're selling for $900. Wow. Liam <laughs> Neeson to write the introduction. We've come to know each other. And he said, I never met Hemingway, but I, I, I uh, would love to have taken him fishing. Uh, and talking about life and all that, because uh, he, he could play, he could play anybody. In the relationships your dad honed over the years, the friendships with some of these celebrities, what did that mean to you as you grew up to, to see how that happened? Like, let's be honest, it, traditionally somebody will say, oh, so-and-so is my friend, but it means they're an acquaintance. Occasionally they work with them or they interview them, that type of thing. That doesn't make a friendship. It sounds like there were real genuine friendships your dad had with some of these people. They trusted my father. He didn't have his eye on the keyhole. He didn't say, Winchell wrote, his great competitor, Walter Winchell, wrote a gossip column. Mm. He wrote who was going out with who. Uh, Earl Wilson wrote a column with bathing beauty photographs in it. My father wrote a column that was required reading at NYU. Carl Sandburg said if my father had written his column in Lincoln's Day. We'd really know what was going on in New York. Hmm. And he was nominated for a Pulitzer Prize. He said that he'd rather have been on the Nixon's enemies list than win the Pulitzer Prize. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I think, you know, those relationships speak volumes about the man and, and the character. In the book, in particular, the stories my, my father told me, I, in reading through that, I enjoyed that book immensely. But the front cover of that book, tell that story with Marilyn Monroe and your mom and your dad. Yeah, it has a picture. I, I have it on my cell phone. It has a picture of my father flirting. Marilyn is flirting with my father, who, by the way, is looking at her eyes. And behind her, uh -huh. <laughs> my mother's looking like, what is going on here, you know? <laughs> and 
you know, Eli Wallach is the only man who can say he cut in on Clark Gable to dance with Marilyn Monroe, and he was her favorite dancing partner. Really? And his wife, Ann Jackson, said, I'm going out and buy five dresses with a plunging neckline. If you can't beat them, join them. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So on the artistic side, we didn't touch upon, uh, you also sang in a choir. Boys chorus, Metropolitan Boys Choir. Three bucks a night, shameful. It's like we were doing it in a third world country. Uh, but it's great. The Metropolitan Opera. Right. Great to put down on a college resume. I was 13 or 12. And they came into our classroom and they said, all the boys stand up, please, and sing My Country Tis of Thee. And I did. And three bucks a night for three years. And I would, uh, Robert Merrill was a big star of the opera. And, you know, as a huge Yankee fan. And he knew my dad. And before the curtain went up and the opera, he was playing, I think he was playing Escamillo, the bullfighter. We would make trades, Yankee Red Sox trades. And then the curtain went up and he'd do the opera. Whoa. And my father, the night Carmen opened, my father wrote the next day in his column, everybody knows the story of Carmen. That's about some boys who hang around at the beginning, sing a song and go off. And that's the story. <laughs> of the hey, very succinct. I like that. It's like crib notes for a, for a novel. Uh, the other thing that you did is you studied acting. I did. With Lee Strasberg, were you really was? Lee Strasberg had a school, still has it, a Lee Strasberg Theater Institute, with my, which my brother Warren helped him set up. And it's a great training. If you told me tonight I'm going to speak to a thousand people, I don't think I'd be nervous. I'd be confident. Hmm. And it's great training. And I did sense memory. Also, if I'm going to make a career, I, this was before I became a career, I'm going to make a career about somebody's acting ability. I think that's a good credential to say I studied with Lee Strasberg. You know, uh, uh, Ethel Merman said she was never, ner never nervous on stage. There's a reason why I'm on stage and you're not, because I'm not nervous. Uh, <laughs> no, it's no crime to be nervous. Yeah, I think you, you would be human right. if you weren't. But it's right. great training, and it's, I, I would recommend it to anybody to take, take a course. And I had a friend, Joe Castiglione's son, Duke, you know. Yeah, Duke, sure. Came to New York, New York yeah. took him under my wing, if you will, and I made him, uh, suggested he go there, and he took some some lessons there and then and now he's the, the chief sports anchor in boston is near near his, in his hometown and it, i think that has to have helped you know also if you're going to practice law it's great in front of a jury too one last thing i mean we've been talking baseball let's get your perspective are we going to have any type of a season you think 2020 i'd be very surprised if they do yeah mm -hmm. i really would i've been watching korean baseball <laughs> i'm desperate i was yeah. watching uh, last year's women's softball. And they're good. I'd love to, play, I'd love to bat against windmill batter. I played 49 seasons in the New York show business league. Every Tuesday we play and I hung them up. I got tired of seeing the, as I grew older, seeing the outfielders creeping in when I got up. I, I, uh, <laughs> unlike, I would, unlike Willie Mays, I didn't stay too long. Yeah. <laughs> he did stay too long in the, the last year with the Mets. You, you would agree, right? Favorite Mets. Who was your favorite all-time Met? Let me guess. George Stork Theodore. George. No, Do, no, Don Bosch. No. Don uh, Bosch. Larry Burright, second baseman. Gosh. No. For me, it was actually, believe it or not, it was Bud Harrelson. When you brought up Bud Harrelson in the fight with Pete Rose and said, oh. but Bud Harrelson was my favorite Met. Uh, my favorite all-time Met? I'd probably say Seaver. Yeah. Yeah, he'd be next to me. First name is, is George, as you know. Right. Yes. Uh, the, the Mets, Buddy Leo Harrelson was born on D-Day. Yes. I thought it was Daryl McKinley Harrelson. No, no, I believe it's Buddy Leo Harrelson. I'm going to see. I I'm gonna go, we're going to go head to head with this one. I could be wrong. Anyway, so <laughs> one day I walk up to, at, at a baseball dinner, I walk up to Phil Lins, 
Oh, yeah, I remember. And I got him mixed up momentarily with Bud Harrelson. Oh, wow. And I said, yo, you were born on D-Day. Da, 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 da. And they walked away saying, who the hell is that guy? Probably. <laughs> who's, that, who's that drunk? <laughs> I realized a day or two later what I had done, right? And so I called up a contact at the somewhere at the Yankees or something. I said, I need Phil Lynn's address. I want to send him a letter saying, how could I do that? So they gave me an address. And I got back a book of poems written by another guy named Phil Linz. They gave me the address <laughs> from some other guy named Phil Linz. <laughs> Touche. All right, he got you on that one. That's you know, people, some, you, if you see an actor on the street and you like his or her work, just and you can't place that, and you just say, I like your work. Because mm -hmm. somebody once walked up to Robert Mitchum and said, Mr. Douglas. Oh, boy. yeah. Gunfight at OK Corral, and you and Burt Lancaster, you did seven films together. You didn't get the role of Ben-Hur. You were offered the role of Masala that Stephen Boyd played, but you decided to make your own sword and sandal epic called Spartacus, which is just as good, if not better, than Ben-Hur. Uh, you, you played Vincent Van Gogh. You should have won the Oscar and went to your winner for the king. And Mr. Douglas, I love him. And Mitchum said, what do you want? He says, would you sign this, please, Mr. Douglas, to my boss, Bob? What's your name? Ed. To Bob. Ed here says you're a jerk. I agree. <laughs> F off and die, Kirk Douglas. Uh, <laughs> so we all, we all make mistakes like that. But uh, know what you Somebody walked up to, to uh, George C. Scott. Uh, no, to uh, Colleen Dewhurst, Scott's wit second wife or first wife. And it's a picture of George C. Scott with Trish Vanderveer. And she said, would you sign this, please, Miss Dewhurst? And she signed it. Wow. But the best one happened when my dad was a witness. He was sitting with Ernest Hemingway. And somebody walked up and said, Mr. Hemingway, you changed my life. All Quiet on the Western Front is one of the great books ever written. <laughs> Bridge of San Luis Rey. My God, what a great. And you topped yourself by capturing the desperation of the Okies heading for a better life in California with the Grapes of Wrath. Well, thank you, Mr. Hemingway, for writing those books. He was, oh, right? My father's jaw is down to the floor. And he says, why didn't you tell that idiot you didn't write any of those books? He said, that would have been easy. Watch. He's telling them what we talked about, demanding to know what we talked about. So he's telling them, let them tell him he's an idiot instead of me. <laughs> good move. That's a good point. Yeah. So yeah. he doesn't seem, he has to be the little guy. All these little people now just say, I like your work. So real quick, as we're, as we're you know, I know you've, you're against the clock a little bit. You've got other uh, Zoom meetings coming up. They used to say that. You're in at Radio Ithaca. The clock is my enemy. The clock, they, well, I hope not. Not, not immediately, anyway. Uh, but uh, what's out there right now that, uh, that you like in terms of movies? That you know? I discovered something on PBS, a show that has been around since 2004. Mm. It's called Doc Martin. And it's available on Acorn, the whole series. It's a hilarious, dry, witty comedy about a tall actor, a tall doctor who might be on the spectrum a little bit, mm -hmm. who was a top surgeon in London, and he developed a phobia about blood. Not good if you're a top Not surgeon. <laughs> he gave up the practice and moved to the little village in Cornwall, very hilly on the ocean, gorgeous village, where he grew up as a boy, and he opens a practice there. And every week, it's on... I know it's on 21. I don't know if 13 carries it as well, but the episodes began in 2004. You can go on uh, Acorn and you start from the beginning. Every week there are these crazy people in the town, these quirky people, and he is the rudest. He says, all he, he can look at you and say, 
what's that spot? Come into my, they, they call this the office, the surgery, come into the surgery and you can tell them what they have by looking at them. And it's, it's so funny. It's my, it's become my favorite must see watch. We watch, we're catching up. We're trying to watch two episodes a night. Uh, to catch up from from the beginning, but it, Doc Martin is absolutely some of it's not for kids, but it is real and it's picturesque and it's in Cornwall and it's 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 British and you have I like using <laughs> the subtitles Downton Abbey. I could not have watched Downton Abbey without the subtitles, yeah, uh, but it's really wonderful. That's my my new favorite show from 2004. Anyway, so the the next book coming out is Hemingway and Me, but uh, maybe not until 2021 is what you're telling us. It has to be. All the offices have been shut down for for so many weeks that they said yeah. we're pushing everything to next year. And then this Red Sox book. They may, I want to call it Loving the Red Sox, whatever they want to call it. I'm just delighted to get that assignment from them. And it's it's just been a, a joy. I'm looking up, uh, learning things. And and you don't want to load overload it with statistics. Right. You know, W-A-R, wins, I don't know, slugging percent. You, you lose an audience. But if you have the basic ones, hits, runs batted in, home runs, and memorable games. Uh, I forget who the Red Sox was. He hit two pinch hit home runs, three-run home runs in both games of a doubleheader. Of course, it was against the St. Louis Browns, but uh, it's still a major league team. You know, all sorts of things like that. Yeah. And, then, and, and then Mo Berg. You know who Mo Berg was? Mo Berg yeah. had played in, in an era of hillbillies who barely spoke any words and had chewing tobacco and no teeth as ball players. He was a Princeton Jewish Phi Beta Kappa seven language linguist who played Major League Baseball as a catcher. They made two movies about him last year. And he, uh, during the war, after, in 1934, we knew war was coming with Japan. And, and he went over with the Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig barnstorming team to introduce baseball to Japan. He learned Japanese on the voyage over, lectured at the University of Tokyo, simplifying their alphabet. And then when, the owner, when one of the team owner's wives went into labor, he went to the hospital and noticed that it overlooked Tokyo Bay. So he got a white coat and a stethoscope to disguise himself as a doctor and went to the roof and filmed Tokyo Bay, a strategic target. Eight years later, Colonel, later to be General Doolittle, used that footage in his raid on Tokyo. Now that would have been enough to make him an amazing man. Never mind that. During the war, they we knew the Germans were working on an atomic bomb. We wanted to know how far along their progress went. So they briefed him on nuclear fission, such as it was. He spoke fluent, accentless German, and they knew that the Nazi, that, that the Germans' chief scientist Heisenberger was going to uh, speak at, in Switzerland. And they said, if he announces a, a breakthrough, you're authorized to kill him. He thus became the only major leaguer, not a soldier, authorized to kill. And they gave him a gun and a, and, and a cyanide pill. And luckily, Heisenberger was not a member of the Nazi party, so he was dragging the research. Oh, we got a long way to go. He didn't kill him. And that's Mo Berg. And he was a Red Sox, too. And, and his last words were, 1973, how did the Mets do today? And before anybody could tell him, he died. Oh. Read seven newspapers a day. I grew up in a house where we got seven newspapers a day. He did too. And you know, if you read the New York Times, if someone else has read it before you, it's not quite put back the same. He would not read the Times if anybody. So that's that. That's the guy I'm going to include in the book too. That's Mo Berg. I think we're we're getting ready to wrap up, but I have just a, a quick question I want to ask you because Jeff, you are such a wealth of knowledge. All of it useless. Well, you. I love Jeff. Love the TV show Jeopardy. 
I was going to say, you'd be my go-to guy on uh, who wants to be a millionaire. I sat next to Alex Trebek once, and I said, you know what the best final Jeopardy question was? He said, what? This United States senator opened the London Zoo in 1939. Don't think of who was a senator in 1930. The answer is Ted Kennedy. His father was ambassador. He was 15 or 12 years old. And he started writing it down, saying we never used that. So far, they haven't used it. But anyway. <laughs> I, what we should do is market Jeffrey Lyons, the board game. Yeah. B-O-R-E-D. Uh, no, 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 no. Um, I, I think the, the one thing I was going to ask you is, in one sentence, oh, what that's, that's tough enough. What don't you know that you wish you did? Uh, speaking French, among other things. I speak Spanish. It's my second language. Speaking a little, a little more than 100 words of Yiddish, I know. My parents spoke it when they didn't want us to understand. Right. <laughs> Robert Klein has a great routine about, about the Yiddish, you know, uh, the punchlines of old comedians was always in Yiddish. Came home to my wife. You know, she said to me, Ich will not. And, 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 <laughs> and when you're a kid, what did they say? Oh, you wouldn't understand. It doesn't translate. Uh, Yiddish is a dying language. Yeah. But yeah. I know words like schmendrake and putz and yeah, yeah. and mamza and, 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 but I know words like stomach and that, but not, I can't, you know, Fiddler on the Roof, which was written, but the lyrics of which were written by my cousin, Sheldon Harnick, uh, uh, had, had an all Yiddish version. I would have liked yeah, to have Yeah, it just wrapped up uh, recently. Right, and you know why they didn't use Zero Mostel in the movie? Because Norman Jewison, the director, went to see him seven nights in a row and he did it differently every night. He was afraid about continuity. One more story. Zero Mostel was called in front of the House on American, the so-called House on American Activities Committee, right. the chairman of which went to jail for tax evasion. Mr. Mostel, we are concerned about the origins of your name, Zero. Said, Congressman, I'm named after my financial status in the community. <laughs> <laughs> he, got, he was taking a nap once and he got a knock on the door. I'm a Jehovah's Witness. I bring a message from God. He said, I'm sleeping. Just slip it under the door for me. <laughs> <laughs> I like that one. That's a good I got a million of them. Uh, but on that note, I really want to thank you so much for giving so much of your time today. Oh, yeah. It was great catching up. I miss working with you. And uh, hope, hopefully we cross paths occasionally on the street. You were walking your dog, right. stumbled across Jeffrey. Hey. I want to tell you, working with Chris was a joy. He was always prepared. He was always, you know, he would get in there two hours before I got out on the Friday, Friday mornings. And he just was flawless doing his work and never um and ha and pause and like that. And I see some of these other weather people and they're not nearly as learned as he was. And, and, and he was, he was the best. He was the absolute best. Thank you, Jeffrey. Coming yeah. from you, I, that, that does, that means a lot. And Jeffrey was always also, I don't know if I ever told you how much I really appreciated when you would get some of these amazing guests coming into the studio. And if I were there on the way out, you would introduce me to them. And it wasn't just in this, uh, you know, blah, 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 Chris, you know, the weather guy. He would always have something nice to say and, and almost make it connecting. And I could engage these people in a brief little conversation. I go home. I, I couldn't wait to come home and tell my wife. I was so excited. I met Julie Andrews Peter today. O'Toole. Peter O'Toole. Oh, yes, I met uh, Chris Cimino today. He was <laughs> I don't think it goes that way. But to bring up uh, Anthony Hopkins, at that point, he was Sir Anthony Hopkins when I met him. And you introduced him to me. And I said, oh, uh, Sir Anthony Hopkins. He said, no, 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 no. Call me Tony. Yeah, that's because he was he, the, the movie he came in to, to publicize was a movie he also produced. So he was actually really nice then. When he was working with somebody else, it was yes, no, yes, no. He's a tough yeah. one. But an actor isn't, pay, isn't really paid to do interviews, be great in interviews. They're paid to be, you put the script in front of them, you know. But some of them are great. Some of them are just difficult. They don't understand the demands of an interview. 
and 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 you feel like Robert Mitchum. I thought I was going to come. I did the research. I watched his movies he did with Laurel and Hardy, for God's sake. And really, and he just yes, no, and it just like I didn't want to be there. But once I started playing baseball trivia with Tommy Lee Jones, that that warmed him up. So I got a yeah. good interview. No, I mean you you always got the best from people because I think they did respect the fact that you did all you did your research and your homework and, and the other thing famous. is if I may add I did I think I did what must have been Penelope Cruz's first English language interview. She had just come from a movie called All the Pretty Horses and she'd memorized her lines in English phonetically. Mm. And I she start, I sat down with her and she was terrified because her English was very limited. I speak her dial. I, actually, I speak so I speak English the way Mickey Mantle spoke. I speak Spanish the way Mickey Mantle spoke English with a deep Southern Spanish accent. She speaks Madrid Spanish, and I started speaking with her in, in Spanish. And I, she she was so relieved, put her arms around me. So so we did an interview for Telemundo too, uh, and that warmed her up. So that's a good way to prepare for an interview. Yeah. All right, Jeff, you stay well, the family as well, stay safe, and we're going to get through this, and hopefully on the other side of this, we can do something like this in person the next time. Yeah. And I'll say hi to your brother on Facebook. Thank Please you. <laughs> All right, be well. Take Have care. a good one, Jeff. Great Thanks. to talk with you. Thanks again. Thank you. Wow. Now, there's something I didn't know, kind of a small world. Uh, oh, knows your brother? Yeah, it's, you know, it's, it's just, I, as I like to say, it's a small world and getting smaller because of things like Facebook the internet, email, and the fact that my brother who works for CBS Radio News uh, knows Jeffrey. And Jeffrey's father and family uh, knew my mom when she was alive and my stepfather who knew his dad, Leonard, uh, from many years, many, many years ago. And by the way, just to, real quick, because I'll throw this in because I think it's cool. My stepfather, who's still alive, used to date Barbara Walters. Really? <laughs> and it, I, once at a black tie dinner that Barbara Walters was at, I came up to her and I said, by the way, and I mentioned his name says hello. And she was like, oh, my God. I can't really do a good Barbara Walters, but she really was, what, what, what totally she remembered him. <laughs> That's yeah. cool, no, yeah. I, you, know, you know, even the other thing with Jeffrey, the first apartment I had in the city, my landlord, her kids played with his kids growing up. Uh, really boy and a girl yeah and uh, Jeffrey lived in in the neighborhood that, that neighborhood that I was in at that time and I would I would come across him periodically but uh, it really is amazing how he just he just keeps going so now he's got two more books in the works uh, the one with Hemingway and the one about the Red Sox so we yeah were... that one I, I look forward to reading the Hemingway not so much but the one about the Red Sox I'd be interested to read no it should it should be fun so on that note, uh, we finished our first two-part interview. Look at that. We look forward to, uh, to others, obviously. And we want to point out to people uh, who've been listening to this podcast. Of course, uh, there's on the B-Lead Podcast Network. All of our podcasts are available. The interview with John Franco, many others we've interviewed across the board here. Uh, we're covering everything from just dealing with middle age, career changes at middle age, uh, dealing with life changes right now at middle age, dealing with yeah. COVID and, and then some. From a male perspective, and uh, it's, you know, when we were on with the Three Tomatoes a couple of weeks ago, and we talked about our perspective compared to their perspective, meaning women who have reached a certain age, it was interesting for us to kind of have the different windows and talk back and forth about getting older. 
Yeah, well, the reality is we're in the same world together and we're supposed to be getting along together. So uh, we, we need to start to listen to each other a little more patiently, closely, and liberally, I think is the best way to say listening, meaning uh, you go in with a preconceived notion about somebody, you're going to jump right on the situation and, and we're back at square one. So it's a matter of opening opening up a little bit. And I hope uh, this podcast helps people a little bit in that direction, at least starts those conversations, right? Yeah. And you know what? Uh, the one thing that uh, becoming a social worker taught me was coming from one side of the circle where I did all the talking in radio to the other side of the circle where I had to really kind of zip the lips and shut up. Yeah. Listening. Like, listening's big. Yeah, it is. It's listen with an open mind and listen with an open heart. And thanks for spending time with us here on Believe. Yeah, if you've been listening, we uh, again, we'd love you to share this with some friends. Uh, we have, of course, our Facebook page called Middle Age Warriors. And you can find, as I said, on iTunes, Spotify, all the various outlets that carry podcasts. We are there. So please tell some friends and uh, give us a listen and give us some feedback. We'd uh, like to hear from you either way. So with that, I'm going to wrap it up. Uh, we've got another show already in the works. We'll talk about that in a little bit. For now, sunshine always. Stay safe out there. Feel good. And thanks again for making us part of your life. Hey, if you enjoy the show, please subscribe and rate the show on iTunes, preferably five if you're feeling generous. We're available also on your favorite directories, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, Luminary, and TuneIn. You can find us at Believe.com, that's B-L-E-A-V, and at Believe Podcast. Without the ones like you, who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you, with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.